Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your presence in this place already. Our hearts are already on fire, Lord, just because of what you've been doing in this service, how you've been speaking to our hearts. And we recognize that it comes from you. Lord, this morning we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Come as the anointer. Come as the anointing. And draw every heart and every eye to Jesus as we move forward. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this time. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way you're going to touch all of our hearts again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to go back to Psalms 3. We just sang about it. But before we do that, I do want to just touch on um, a couple of the crusades that are coming up. Asking for you to pray about them. Uh, two weeks today, our teams are going to be arriving in Paraguay, South America. And we're really excited about that. Um, you know, we've done, this will be number 37, crusade number 37. Yeah. And so, we, you know, we've been in like eight or nine different nations over the past 14 years doing these crusades since we launched out from Reinhard Bunke. And every single one of them is different. But the thing that is the same about all of it is seeing the love and compassion of Jesus just being poured out upon the people that we encounter. Be praying for the team as they're going to be spending the week giving out tons and tons and tons of groceries. They're going to be giving out hundreds and hundreds of stuffed animals and teddy bears. Many of them have come from you personally, so thank you very much for your generosity with all those stuffed animals. We're going to be in schools. We're going to be in churches. There are so many opportunities that are going to be taking place in Paraguay. And then we really are excited because the Lord is breaking us into South America after working exclusively in Central America and the Caribbean. This is our first reach into South America. So we're going to be working in Argentina as well as Paraguay. We need your prayers. So many incredible things are already happening uh, at the moment. We know that the mayor of the city is coming. It's the second largest city in the nation. The mayor is coming. The governor, who you've already seen a message from him on the screen a couple of weeks ago. The governor is coming. And there is the possibility that we may even connect with the president of Paraguay. So we're just asking the Lord just to continue to open doors. Right now we have 42 people coming. If something starts burning in your heart today that says, I've got to come and be a part of that South America outreach, there is still time, but we really need to know about it today. We also want to just make you aware that uh, the, the crusade that's going to follow that this summer in July is a huge crusade that's going to be taking place in El Salvador in July. And so if you have a desire to actually not have to fly all the way to the bottom of the world and something a little shorter, we would love to invite you to come be a part of the El Salvador crusade, which you'll be hearing about more later. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to read the first four verses out of, out of Psalms 3. And then we're going to see what the Holy Spirit says to us today. Psalms 3. It may even be up on the screen there. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me there is no help for him in God. Selah. Which means think about what's just been said. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. Lord, we just lay our hands on this word. We know it's God's word. We pray now that you would inspire us by the power of your Holy Spirit, not just today, but for every day moving forward and even into eternity. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Now, this is for sure an inspirational psalm. It's one that is well known, and like I said, we just heard the choir sing it so masterfully. I want to kind of approach it in a couple of different ways today, and so hopefully if you don't like one of the ways, you'll like the other way, but I want to start 
by talking a little bit about this psalm from a Jewish perspective. Um, there are several issues that come up when you, you start looking at some of the rabbinic thought uh, that applies to Psalms 3. And I want to just kind of maybe bring a couple of them to you here at the very beginning. The very first one is simply this. Why is this listed as the third psalm? The story that's going on behind this psalm is this. David is fleeing Jerusalem for his life. He's being pursued by a rebellious mob, a treacherous mob, one led by family and friends, but specifically led by Absalom, his son. And so the question is, why is this, in, why is this Psalm 3? Why isn't it later on in the Psalms? Because David is probably in his late 60s when this is happening. And so it's not at the beginning of his life. It's not even in the middle of his life. It's near the end of his life. He's in the twilight of his life. And so one of the thoughts that they have is like, why wouldn't this be something that would be tied to the end of the Psalms or at the end of his Psalms? Well, the answer is this. At least this is the answer that's proposed. Psalms 3 is actually tied to Psalms 2. Now that might be interesting for some of you who are like quickly running through your brain, what is Psalms 2? Well, you can look at it later. But let me tell you this. In Psalms 2, you see the national crisis that's taking place for Israel. It's the last great war against Israel. And you see the deliverance of God coming to the nation. This is God moving on a macro level. What happens then in Psalms 3 is David, at the end of his time, he's engaged in this incredible war, this incredible struggle, and he too is depending upon God to rescue him and to deliver him out of something that's greater than him. So on one level, you see God moving on a national level. On another, on another psalm, you see him moving on an individual level. One is macro, one is micro, but this is the point. God is in charge of all of it. There's a second issue that, that they like to talk about. In rabbinic tradition, when a phrase or a psalm, make sure I get this right, when a phrase or a psalm appears before the name, in this case David, it is a sign that it is divinely sourced. What that means is this, it's not just a psalm of David, it's actually a psalm to David. Now, when you read in Hebrew, and, and Dr. Marty would be much more skilled at this than I am, it's not always what you read that's important. It's what they were saying as they were writing it that's really important. Let me give you another example that's going to come up later in this text. If something is repeated in Hebrew, like many are they that rise up against me. Many are they that rise up against me. Well, what is being said there means there's an exclamation mark. It's, an, it, it's something that is being used for emphasis so that the person who is actually reading that text stops for a moment and takes it in and sees really how important that is to what's being said. And so it's about these written techniques. The same thing is happening here. The name. That is, is, that is on this psalm indicates it's not just a psalm of David, it's a psalm to David. And you know what? It's not just a word for us today, it's a word to us today. Something being divinely sourced, and it's being repeated over and over and over today in the spirit realm. And he's saying this, catch it, listen, hear it, take it in. And so here at the very beginning, before we even get into the text, we see that God's doing something on a macro level. God's doing something on an individual level. God is saying, hey, this is something that, yes, comes out of your experience. But he's also saying above that, there are things that I am downloading into you personally today that are supernaturally charged. 
So get ready to receive it. The third issue that comes up, and I'll just touch on this very briefly by saying it this way. They're asking the question, what is going on here? How could this possibly be happening? You're talking about the most popular king of Israel, and he's running for his life. This is an infamy. How could something like this be happening? Now, it's, it's not that it's uncommon in the ancient world for kings to be deposed, but for a godly king to be challenged this way by friends and advisors and by his own family. The question is, how could that happen? So let's go back and look at the psalm. I'd like for you to keep your Bibles open today because we're going to be going back and forth quite a bit to look at the actual text. But this is what it starts with. Lord, how are they, how they have increased to trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say there is no help for him in God. Selah. What we want to start looking at right off at the very beginning is the fear and the frustrations of David. Because they're pretty clearly laid out here. Let's start with the fear. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say, there it is repeating, so we're supposed to catch it. We're supposed to look and see what it's saying. David is uttering it twice, so we'll get it. Now, Jewish scholars, they look at the two different phrases to mean two different things. So track with me here. Many are they. The first time is an indication of the size of the opposition. It's like all of Israel has been caught up with this fascination, with this just, yeah, fascination is the right word of Absalom. And it seems like more people by the day are joining him and following him and running after him. Many are they the second time. It's a status of the opposition. It has to do with the leaders and the friends who are not just abandoning David, but they're abandoning the purpose of God for the nation. Well, that's a really scary thing to say, isn't it? That not only could we abandon things personally, but we could also abandon God nationally. The first one, it talks about the quantity of the people coming after David. You have to understand that there has been a mob that has been building. There has been this, this rebellious group that has been mounting this effort. They have now taken Jerusalem. They have taken the fortress. They have taken the palace. They have taken the throne. The only thing left for them to do is to seize and execute the retreating king. The second many are they statement, it speaks to the quality of the people who is coming after David. One of those people is a guy by the name of, let's see if I can say this right, Marty, Ahithophel. He's one of the closest advisors to David. You could even argue that he was the wisest man in Israel at the time. Except he's turned his back on David and he's turned his back against the purposes of God through David. It's not only just Ahithophel. It says that the elders of Israel had also abandoned following David. But worse than that, worse than having these wise counselors, worse than having the leaders and the elders of the nation turn their back, his own son, Absalom, is leading the charge, hunting David like a fox into the wild. That is the context of this psalm. David is under tremendous pressure. 
He is under enormous amount of stress. And he is afraid. He's afraid for his life. He may even be afraid for his son if his son follows through with what he's trying to do. I mean, it's easy to understand the fickleness of the crowd. People get swayed by popular opinion left and right. But how devastating for one of your own sons, for your family and closest friends, to chase you, to execute you, to replace you. It would have been devastating to David. This is his fear. But it's not just his fear. It's his frustration. Let's go back to the text for a moment. Let's look there at verse 2. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. The writer wants you to really grasp what's taking place here because it's, again, it's pretty brutal. It's not just that they were saying that there's no help for him and God. It's how they were actually saying it. And I want to take a moment and break this down for you because it just, I mean, I was over at my dad's house multiple times trying to make sure I got this right. Because here's the thing. Number one. This is the type of accusation, there's no help for him in God. Or for you, there's no help for you in God. This is the type of accusation or advice that comes from somebody who doesn't really know the heart and character of God. It's the expression of failure. It's an expression of absolute defeat. It's one of utter hopelessness. That's how David would have felt in that moment. Absolutely overwhelmed, absolutely crushed and hurting inside. And here's the thing, there is no help for you in God. That is a lie from Satan. You need to hear that this morning. God is not mad at you today. God does not despise you. He, he's not too busy for you. He's not saying you're not holy enough to come and get my attention. It's not that, you know, nothing else can be done. These are the lies of the enemy. And he says them over and over and over again. Whether you want to hear it or not, he wants to tell you that there is no help for you in God. He speaks lie after lie because he wants to take you away from the presence of the Lord. He wants to keep you from crying out to the one who can supernaturally infuse resurrection life and power into your life and situation. You know what, someone needs to hear this this morning. Somebody in this room has got to hear this, and it's simply this. Do you know that Father God loves you with an unconditional love? Let me just say that again. For somebody here, you need to hear this. Father God loves you with an unconditional love. He does not hate you. He does not despise you. He is not mad at you. God loves you. In fact, the Bible tells us he loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us so much he gave. Jesus loved us so much he came. This is what I want to tell you. There is no help for you in God. 
It's a lie straight out of the pit of hell. You absolutely have to cancel that every time it comes to you in whatever situation you are. Because hear this. No one is ever beyond the reach of God's love. And no situation is ever beyond the help of God's power. Hear it again. No one is ever beyond the reach of God's love. And no situation is ever beyond the help of God's power. Whatever you're going through today, God loves you. Whatever is taking place in your life, nothing is beyond his help or beyond his mighty power. But there's a second side to this. Something that would be even more troubling to David. They were saying this. There is no help for him in Elohim. That's the term they're using for God. There is no help in Elohim. Now, in rabbinic thought, Elohim is a title for God. El means power, creator, ruler, judge. It's an impersonal title because it speaks to the bigness and, and the vastness of God. The thing is, it wasn't exclusive to Israel. You can read Elohim, and you can see that it's attributed to pagan deities. The only difference is the translation. So if you see God spelled with a lowercase g-o-d, you know it's Elohim is being applied to a pagan entity. But if you see it with a big g-o-d, you know then it's being applied to the God of Israel. For David, the use of this title sent an ominous sign to him because it meant the people actually believed that God was beyond the situation, that he was absolutely indifferent to the plight of David. That would have been terrifying for David. Not just the thought that, wow, could God be so far removed from me that he doesn't even care about my situation? That would be one problem. But the other problem would be this. The people actually believe it. They've actually swallowed that. It was a clear indicator to David that the people had not only lost sight of the relevance of God, it revealed their ignorance and their prejudice towards God. Catch this. Just catch this. If the people had been in right relationship with God, if the people had been walking in the real purposes of God, they would not have used Elohim. They would have used a different term to describe God altogether. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But let me lighten it up for a moment. And let me talk about my mom. Hi, Mom. So when I was a teenager... And my brother and I, you know, just growing up in a, uh, a PK house, pastor's kid home. My mom was always very interested in the company that we kept. I hear laughter in the room, okay. Is that about my friends or is it about your friends, okay. And she just always wanted to know. So, you know, she would ask Anthony or she would ask me, so who are you hanging out with? Oh, mom. Good people. <laughs> well, my mom never let it sit at good people. No, no, no. T tell me their names and where are they from? What's their family like? You know, where do they go to church? 
Uh, this is the person's name. They come from this family, the church. <clears throat> I mean, you know, and she, but she would keep pressing the point. Well, no, 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 I need to know who you're hanging out with. No, mom, they're good. Are they Christian? Do they know Jesus? Do they love the Lord? Well, yeah, I'm sure they do. Well, you know, my mom was, was so much smarter than we were, and she still is. But she'd be like, you know what? I, I just think that you guys, you know, the Lord's blessed us with a pool in the backyard. Why don't you just bring your friends over, and they can come over here, and y'all can swim and have a good time, and, and I'll make some hot dogs or something, and it'll just be fun. Well, that was a fantastic idea. So, you know, our friends came over. And we swam, and, and we laughed, and it was time to eat. And so, you know, we're like, hey, let's just grab some hot dogs, and we can keep on playing. And Mom's like, no, 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 I, I've set the table. <laughs> we're having hot dogs. <laughs> no, no, it's fine, everybody, take your time, dry off. You know, and so we would dry off, and it's like, you know, my friends would be like, what's going on? I said, we're going to have dinner at the table. With who? My mom. I don't know where that put us on the cool factor at that moment, but Anthony and I were like, we, if we're going to eat, we're going to eat with mom. So we would eventually, you know, dry off. We'd come in, and we'd sit down at the table. And, of course, you know, she had hot dogs, and she had chips and drinks and all these other different things. And we were hungry because we, we were young. We're teenagers. Let's eat. And there would be that moment. Mom, having asked us, you know, about our friends, you know, how are they doing? Do they love the Lord? Oh, yes, they love the Lord. Everything's good, Mom. You, you have nothing to worry about with us hanging out with them and everything. Because, okay. So we'd all sit down and, and, you know, my mom, God bless her, had the gift of discernment. And she would, she would simply say, you know, we need to say grace over this meal. I'm going to ask one of your friends, Stephen, if they would give grace this morning. <clears throat> Now, it's not that funny. I mean, you know, you've got to know that in that moment, I am doing an evaluation of, okay, who's here? One, two, three, four. Lord, let it be anybody but four. I mean, you know, anybody but four and we're okay. And my mom, just with a big smile on her face, with her British accent, shoulders back. Hey, number four, <clears throat> why don't you say grace tonight? I've had some awkward moments in my life. But listening to number four, try to stumble through a prayer just to thank God for hot dogs was brutal. Did you know you can tell how well somebody knows the Lord by the way they pray and the way they address God? My mom sure did. I mean, as soon as they went home, it's like, hey, Stephen, you got a moment? I was like, no, I don't really have a moment. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about friend number four. You can tell how well somebody knows God by the way they pray and the way they address God. See, the same is true for us today. We're not here today just because we gather to worship the God who, who knows all the stars by name and holds them in the palm of his hand. Yes, that's our God. He's much more than that, even more vast and more majestic than that. 
But what draws us closer this morning, what was moving us so deeply in praise and worship, is that God has revealed himself as a personal God. He's one who takes up residence within our own hearts through faith and love in Jesus Christ. And friends, there is power in the name of Jesus. If you know him, you know it's true. For our Spanish audience, I poder in el nombre de Jesus Cristo. Amen. And so let's go back to the text. Because this is what was happening here. David heard what they said and how they addressed God, and he knew there was an error in their ways. This is what happens. Verse 2, many are they that say there is no help for him in God. That again goes back to looking at the fears and the frustrations of David. Selah. Now, something happens with Selah. If you look at what's happened before that, you see that fear and that frustration. And he wants you to capture it. He wants you to understand how difficult and dark it really was. But you're about to see a tremendous switch in tone in the next verse. Let's look at that verse. But thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. It started with four words. But thou, O Lord. He didn't call out to Elohim. He called out to the one who was and is and always will be for Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah God. Here's the personal, sacred, revealed name to Israel. It's the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping name of God. Amen to that. And this is what he begins to cry out. But thou, he's like, no, it's not, there's no help in Elohim, but you, oh God, you, Yahweh, you, Jehovah, you are the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping one. You are the one I have a relationship with. You're the one I'm calling on. Now, what this triggers is an emergence of faith. And what you see in this next couple of verses is him swinging from just all the evidence of fear and frustration in his life to stepping into faith and power. And it is a beautiful example of how we are supposed to walk with Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Not bound by fear because he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Not frustration, but full of faith in our God. Now, you may ask, what, what is the emergence of faith? How does that happen? Well, this psalm tells us two ways, and and I'm going to just tell you one of them today, but let me, well, let me give them both to you, but I'll explain one of them. First is this, remembering what God has done for you. I mean, that's straight out of the book of Deuteronomy that was commanded to the, to the children of Israel. Remember all the things that I've done for you. You want to walk in faith? You want to walk in a victorious, overcoming life with God? Never forget where you come from. Never forget what he's done for you, starting at the cross and all the days of your life. Never forget. The second thing is this. 
It's not just remembering what God has done for you, but it's also discovering the revelation of the nature and character and heart of God as buried in the scriptures. But that'll be for another time. Let's talk about the things that he remembers, about what God had done for him. David is running for his life. But even as he's fleeing, he's remembering, and he's crying out the personal name, Thou, O Lord. And then he begins to remember, and he begins to declare, You have been a shield. You have been my glory, and you are the one who lifts up my head. Let's look at these very quickly. The shield. O Lord, you have been my shield. How many times had God protected David? How many times had he watched over the promises concerning him, the destiny being released in him? David knew that God was gracious. He knew that he was compassionate. So many different times in his life with Goliath, with Saul, with Nabal, as Pastor Dan shared last week, with the Philistines, all throughout his life, God had always been his shield. Friends, I've got a good word for you this morning. God is not just David's shield. He is your shield and exceedingly great reward. So he's running. And he's remembering, God has been gracious to me. God has been compassionate to me. God has been my shield. And he cries out knowing this, that the one who had protected him before could protect him again. Now, that is the language of faith. Can you hear it? It's the expression of trust in God when circumstances would say otherwise. The Bible describes it this way. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, but the evidence of things not yet seen. David is retreating, but he is confessing all the way, Oh, Lord God, you are my shield. Somebody listen to this this morning. All of us face moments of challenge, transition, difficulty, hardship, pain, hurt. All of us do. Yet, when you are retreating, when you feel like you are reeling, don't forget the goodness and greatness of God. Again, let your faith rise this morning. Feel it coming up in your soul and hear this prophetic word. The one who has done it before is the one who can do it again. Again. 